Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Carice, and today I'm delighted to welcome a member of the Elsevier family to Raise the Line. Dr. Phil Thieu is the UK Editor-in-Chief for Clinical Key Student Assessment. That's a question bank which integrates Elsevier's clinical key platform and resources with high-yield questions designed for students to use. He has a deep background as an educationalist and strong interest in research. He's the series editor of the globally renowned Crash Course series of 14 medical textbooks, which has sold over a million copies and has been translated into eight different languages. Additionally, he serves as an elected council member of the Association of Medical Educators. And as if that were not enough, Dr. Siu is also chief medical officer for medicalchain.com and practices as a family physician in Leeds. And it's a pleasure to have you on the program today. Thank you very much, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. So we always start with getting some career highlights and, and more particularly, we like to know from the clinical people why they were attracted to medicine in the first place. Absolutely. Love to give you a bit of my background. When I was growing up as a first generation immigrant in Great Britain, I was amazed by the support that the local communities provided to me and my family. And really this made me determined to make a positive contribution back to my own community and those around me. And, and that's what first drew me into science and eventually to medicine, because I can make that contribution. I was particularly fascinated by the idea of using science to improve health outcomes and help people in need. When I was 16, so you know, much, much younger than the US system, I had to make a real difficult decision between pursuing the humanities or science, but I ultimately chose science and I'm really glad that I did. But even though I was really passionate about science and medicine, I really never lost my love for literature, for writing. And that's what eventually led me to my current role as a medical educator. I've got a unique opportunity to help shape the next generation of healthcare providers and, and to share my passion for both medicine and education. It's, it's truly a dream come true for me. Tell us about you know your path to Elsevier and fill us in a little bit more on your current role there. Sure. Going back in the day when I was just a medical student, I really stumbled upon little gem of an opportunity. And this, this nucleus has really crystallized my career uh, from that point onwards, really. It was, in essence, an advert and an email newsletter for an author position to an update a medical textbook under the Crash Course brand. And let me tell you now, Michael, you know, when I was young, naive, uh, as a medical student, I was so excited to have that opportunity to uh, aspire, to have my own name in bright lights on the front cover of a medical textbook. It was, it was something to really aspire to. But then, you know, I had all these doubts, uh, these negative thoughts that started to creep in, you know, what if I don't get the job? What if I'm not good enough? Uh, what happens if the reviewers don't like the book? I spent days weighing the pros, the cons. And eventually, you know, I mustered up the courage to apply and... I was really, really nervous for that first interview. And and back in those days, you know, before Zoom, before before online, holograms, et cetera, it, it was conducted over the phone with a founder and, and the original series editor, Dr. Horton Zarr. And, and then there was then Jeremy Bowes, who's the content strategist at Elsevier at the time. And I remember, uh, you know, at that day, I was pacing back and forth, back and forth all the time in my apartment, sweating bullets. And I was really hoping, uh, beyond hope, that I'd make a good first impression over the phone. And to be fair, it was the first interview I've had for a proper job at that age. And, and I 
And that was a naive, you know. I really thought the best way to come across over the medium of the telephone uh, as a learned and academic individual uh, was to put on my suit and also wear my academic gown over the top. So I studied at Cambridge Medical School <laughs> and we have these gowns and that we wear for formal events and very much like Hogwarts. So, so now I was wearing the suit with my gown over the top, sitting down on my chair, ready to take the phone call. Unfortunately for a uh, young and naive Phil, I really underestimated the laundry capacity of the dry cleaners then. And I didn't have any suit pants. <laughs> uh, I'll be honest, Michael, uh, I, I was in far too deep. Uh, I was committed. So I need to see that through. So you can imagine me, I was in the, in my own student bedroom on my chair, no pants with an academic gown on, because, you know, that's exactly what a <laughs> rational student would do during a telephone interview. Of course. Uh, pretty much a sight to behold. Now, Michael, uh, I want to reassure you right now. I've got, I'm fully, fully dressed. Okay. <laughs> I've got pants on for this interview. We have some standards on this podcast, and that's one of them. So you guessed correctly. We've got to raise the line somehow. <laughs> now, so you got to tell us, did you get the job? Well, during the interview, you know what? I must have made some good impression. Or maybe the pantless method worked because I was offered the job, being the author of that edition of the Crash Course Medical Textbook on Pathology as it happened. And to be fair, you know, looking back on it now, it, it felt really like yesterday that I took that leap of faith and applied for that position for that medical textbook. And I, I I couldn't have imagined that journey that would unfold from that single opportunity that stemmed from that day. Fast forward to now, you know, I've had the, the, the real privilege of being part of various exciting projects in medical education and health tech with Elsevier, from writing textbooks to becoming the series editor of the Crash Course book series, uh, to being the editor-in-chief of Elsevier's Clinical Solutions, the order set platform as well. And, and really, it's truly been a journey filled with a lot of growth, a lot of learning, and a lot of opportunities to make a difference in the lives of a lot of people, both professionals and, and patients alike. And all of this has accumulated in, in an opportunity to be the editor-in-chief of Elsevier's Clinical Key Assessment Platform. And that's been a highlight of my career. And more recently, being elected as the council member for the Association of Medical Educators. Well, congratulations on all that, that you have compiled quite a track record there. And I'm wondering, you know, for the particularly for the medical students and early career folks in our audience, I mean, that's a tremendous load to balance mm. and and to also be still practicing. So do you have any tips on how to juggle all of that? It's tricky, isn't it, Michael? It's tricky. In our lives, as we go through, there are so many different things that pull us in different directions. But what I find the best way, the best barometer as you go through this life's journey is to be true to yourself, is to have passion projects that you really, really believe in. Because if you have these projects that you really believe in, work doesn't really seem like work. And in essence, you feel as if you're living the best possible life that you can live. And that's what matters, because if you can balance all of the different projects that excite you, that make you wake up in the morning, that is what you want to achieve, if you can. And it's something to aspire to. And obviously, everyone had to, to grind through all of the hard work to get to where you need to be to reach that space. Wise words. So let's get into some details on clinical key student assessment. But first, for folks in our audience who aren't familiar with the whole clinical key situation, can you tell us about that first? Happy to, Michael. Elsevier's clinical key student platform is a is an online platform that provides medical students with an online learning environment and the aim of the platform is to help students build the knowledge the confidence the skills that they need throughout their own careers 
and the platform is linked directly to the medical school's individual learning management system. So that really means that faculty or instructors can can support students by assigning content that supplements the uh, the student's own curriculum and enhance the faculty's own lecture materials with images, illustrations, and, and any other resource directly from Elsevier's library. So, you know, there's no need for me to Google for pictures of a skin rash just to put in a lecture slide, whereas you can take it directly from Elsevier's journals and image bank, all copyright cleared and ready for use, you know, in medical education. Now, the platform itself includes access to hundreds of textbooks that students love throughout decades, including Grey's Anatomy for Students, Medical Physiology, as well as any videos on topics like anatomical dissections and clinical examinations. Faculty and instructors can also use the platform to create their own assessments and, and formative assignments, which are linked to a dashboard that provides that performance metric and suggests reading based on the student's own performance. So overall, Clinical student provides a really convenient, I feel, and really quite user-friendly way for medical students to access the resource that they need to succeed in their own studies, and also for the faculty and instructors to help support and track the student's own progress as well. It was a very powerful platform. And so clinical key student assessment, tell us about that. So the clinical key student assessment platform itself is within the clinical key platform. And really the aim is for faculty to be able to assign these assessments and these assignments for students based on what they're learning. So as an example, if a student was doing cardiology or doing cardiology placement or, or an observership somewhere, then their own faculty instructors can assign the students to do certain number of questions or assignments or certain amount of readings within the clinical key assessment platform, and then students are able to do it. But more importantly, faculty can see and can measure and can track their progress, and then can also advise and assign a more individualized set of questions based on what they're learning at the time or based on their previous performance. So I see it as, as really having a, a global reach, but having a really local input and also output for the student's perspective, whereas they can get some one-to-one -one formative assignments and one-to-one -one formative feedback, whereas they might not be able to uh, using other types of platforms. Well, it's almost real-time feedback. Almost, almost, depending on obviously the time it takes for the faculty or instructors to, to feedback and also give further assignments. But obviously for the student themselves, they will get immediate real-time feedback from the platform based on their answers and based on their own readings. And they're free to explore the platform themselves. And obviously the guidance from the faculty is, is really the cherry on the top. Yeah, that sort of tailored, personalized feedback and direction. That's very powerful from an educational standpoint. Mm. I, would, I mean, I'm not a pro or anything, but it seems like <laughs> if I'm the student, that is a terrific way to achieve progress perhaps more quickly if you've got somebody who zeroed in and said, oh, okay, so I saw you missed those three questions on X, so I'm going to feed you some information on that. Absolutely, Michael. And this personalized individual learning journey that students will go on, that's the same throughout their career. Because even if you were a doctor, you will know there are areas of your own knowledge that you are missing, as an example, and you will know how to remedy it through good self-reflection, and you will focus on those areas where you're missing that knowledge chunk. Now with Elsevier, we give that first foundation, that first step to help students by providing a faculty uh, or linking up the faculty and instructors into a platform where it's much easier to use to help them in that journey of self-discovery and self-learning, which hopefully will set them up for the rest of their careers. 
Now, I understand that one of the projects you're working on is reviewing content with an eye on diversity, equality, and inclusion. Fill us in on that. Yeah. Um, I mean, at Elsevier, we understand the critical role that diversity, equity, inclusion play in medical education and healthcare. You know, that's why I've been working with our team to assess the educational content, including the images, the illustrations, the text, to make sure it really accurately reflects the uh, diverse backgrounds of the patients our users will be treating in the future. So we're really committed to promoting a real inclusive and equitable learning environment and providing resources and, and support on topics that relate to diversity, equity, inclusion, such as unconscious bias, cultural competency, and anti-racism. Now, one of the specific areas we're focusing on is the review of our assessment questions, particularly in the context of these clinical vignettes that precede a question. And it's essential that these questions must be inclusive and really must be representative of the diverse patient populations that they will encounter in a future career. So, for an example, having images of skin pathologies and a variety of skin colors and backgrounds, rather than just the traditional textbook photo of a rash on a white Caucasian skin. Now, you know, sometimes exam questions are really famous for having what I call characters of peoples and occupations. Let me give you some examples, Michael. You know, there may be clinical vignettes and questions involving lorry drivers when they present clinically, and invariably the answer will always be diabetes. The owner of a pub in, in Great Britain will always have an alcohol-related disorder, or a businessman flying on a business trip to an exotic land alone will always have uh, some type of sexually transmitted disease as a diagnosis, are some of the real extreme examples of these vignette descriptions. Now, that's really bad from a student perspective and learning these sort of biased associations rather than the clinical outcomes is also quite disrespectful. So we're looking at the language used within the questions. We want to make sure it's respectful and also really is educationally useful for the students. We really want to give you know, students a, a good understanding of the, the needs of the different patients and the ability to provide culturally appropriate care. And to do that, we, we must make sure that our content is, is free from bias. And our goal is to prepare students for the realities of, of medical practice and, and provide you know, the best possible care to all the patients, irregardless of the background that they have. And I believe that pr promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion in medical education, we can really create a more just and equitable healthcare system for everyone concerned. So process-wise, how do you know that you've got it right in the end? I mean, who are there other people being brought into the process that haven't been involved before, you know, to get a fresh set of eyes on it? Or how, how are you going about it? Absolutely. So we have an internal editorial process, which is tweaked and changed all the time based on student feedback, based on faculty feedback from the hundreds of faculties in terms of institutions that use Clinical Key Student Assessment Platform. And by that, we mean each individual institution has their own EDI criterias and their own guidelines that they want to follow themselves. And we take the best practice of all of them and ingest it into their own editorial process so that we make sure that all existing content, which is a work in progress, as well as any new content that comes into the platform, is to be sure to be screened for these types of things we need to be aware of. You know, the other thing I'm curious about, and we did mention the different hats you wear, is how you're practicing still as a physician mm. informs, affects your work as an editor and vice versa. Absolutely. I think, I think it's vital. I think it's really, really important to have a grounded view on life and on the patients that we serve. So as an example, because I'm a, 
I practice in family medicine. I serve my own local community, um, not for a long period of time per week per se, but I think it helps keep me grounded and it helps me to be at the front line of medicine because these are the patients that I will see day to day. And these are the future ethical sort of medical educators as such that I want to train to be able to see these patients of tomorrow. And I want to be able to look at a patient in the eye and to be able to tell them and give them the best possible medical advice as well as treatment that we would teach the students themselves using the platform. And that's what we really aspire to. You know, I want to be able to use the platform, something as a springboard for students to do their own journey for their own career, for their own self-development. And certainly for myself as a medical educator, I think having that foot in the door where I'm seeing patients directly, I'm asking them questions, I'm understanding them, I'm seeing them not as a disease on a platform or in a textbook, but I'm seeing them in real life with all their complexities, I think makes it so much more rewarding at the end of the day for me. Oh, that all makes sense. So let's touch on Medical Chain for a minute. Can you give us uh, an overview of the company and your role there? Sure. I'd be happy to give you an overview of Medical Chain. Medical Chain is a cutting-edge healthcare technology company that's really leading the development of methods to integrate blockchain technology into the modern healthcare system. And our goal really is to empower patients by giving them complete ownership and, and control of their health data. Now, in recent decades, technology has played a, a very significant role in the medical consultation model. You know, physicians are relying very heavily on computers as their digital assistants. And this integration of technology in the medical field has for sure allowed for more efficient treatments of patients and a decrease in misdiagnosed or misunderstood conditions. And I know, Michael, obviously osmosis is very passionate about these rare zebra conditions that we were discussing before. Absolutely. Now, a part of the sort of large centralized patient databases that have emerged, especially in Great Britain, as a result of the modern national health systems, they often store data in separate, what I call data silos, in separate data silos. And they're really governed by different gatekeepers. And it makes it really difficult for a physician to access all of a patient's health records. And, and indeed, it's really difficult for a patient to have access to their own health records. So as an example, if a patient was on holiday, in London, and uh, whereas they normally live in Leeds, and they see a doctor in London for whichever health condition that they have, well, as a, as a family medicine practitioner myself, I won't be able to have that access to the data, nor the results that they have in London. And certainly the patient won't be able to have it directly either. And that's where the blockchain technology comes in. Now, medical chain is at the forefront uh, of using blockchain technology to really improve the quality of medical consultation and really empower the patients by giving them access to their own health records. And I think that by involving patients in their own healthcare decisions, I really believe that we can really improve the accuracy of diagnosis and treatment plans. Uh, certainly, our aim is to bring that, that shift in healthcare by, uh, by providing that patient-centric approach. I'm very proud to be part of this development and I really believe that as medical systems throughout the world continues to, to face new challenges, the patient-centric approach by integrating different data silos within the healthcare it will become more and more necessary for sure. Is part of the reason blockchain is involved encryption for patient privacy, or why does using blockchain help with this unification of information? Yeah, you, you've got the nail on the head there, Michael. So, you know, a blockchain is, is basically is a, a small database that's distributed across a network of computers and, and that keeps an identical version of the truth. So, so really this technology enables individuals to have 
complete ownership and control over their own data cryptographically and, and really eliminates the need to trust any one institution with their own information. So it really distributes that in a way. So exactly as you said. Excellent. So we, as you know, are part of Elsevier, an education company, and we love to fill knowledge gaps. One of our favorite questions for guests is to identify something that they really care about where they think, you know, most people just don't know it or they believe a myth about it or there's just a gap of some kind. What, what would that be for you? Do you know what? I think the one topic that would be incredibly impactful for osmosis to cover, it really is a major topic, is how to widen access for medical student applicants from diverse backgrounds. Now, in Great Britain, and I'm not sure what the stats are for the US, but in Great Britain, 80% of medical students come from just 20% of high schools. That is incredibly stark statistic yeah. of the lack of access to medical education from these students who are really from maybe disadvantaged backgrounds. So I feel there's real need for increased diversity and social mobility within medical student recruitment process. And, and to be fair, which would include healthcare as a whole. I think it'd be great for osmosis to create content on the maybe the mechanisms that can help assist with widening access, bursaries, scholarships, mentorship programs, and and how high school students may get access to them. Because I think it's really important to to empower these aspiring health professionals from these diverse backgrounds who would otherwise not pursue a career in medicine. Because I know that even though osmosis has videos on MCAT and, and how they apply for US medical schools, but having Maybe a, maybe a deeper video series that offer further advice on how to navigate the intricacies of the medical school application process, I think can help widen the access and really create a more diverse and representative workforce, really. And, and I think by doing so, we can really bridge the gap, you know, in the disparities of healthcare outcomes. And, you know, we can inspire a new generation of, of potential health professionals to follow their own dreams. That's an excellent idea. So in the U.S., there's been a lot of attention paid to the very low percentage of African-Americans that are physicians. Hmm. And other guests have talked to us about the importance of efforts of introducing the very idea that you can be a physician to communities of color, elementary school age, hmm. middle school age, and start demystifying the process because they may not know anybody that's applied to medical school before and don't realize all the steps. And of course, there are a lot of costs involved as well. So some of these groups are focusing on that piece of it. But in the end, a lot of it is just getting them to understand that they belong in that arena and that it's possible for them. Absolutely, Michael. And do and you know what? Inspiring these new generations of potential healthcare professionals in the future who they thought they might never be at that stage, just by simply inspiring them and showing them that it can be done and by simplifying the process, I think you would have, you know, a much better chance at diversifying, you know, any potential medical student makeup within any organization. I mean, the statistics I gave you before, 80% of medical students in the UK and in Great Britain comes from just 20% of high schools. What's happening to the rest? It's incredible, isn't it? And certainly it's definitely not reflective of the patients that we see on a day-to-day -day basis. So in terms of the makeup and in terms of diversity, so certainly I think, you know, having that diverse makeup will make the workforce more resilient, more robust, and it probably will give better health outcomes too. Well, that's, as I say, terrific thing to focus our attention on. So I know you have, as we wrap up here, I know you have particular interest in supporting the career development of healthcare professionals. We've already heard some great advice about finding a passion. I believe wearing pants during interviews was another piece of advice. What else do you want to leave our audience with along those lines? 
Sure. I'm happy to share, Michael. I mean, first and foremost, I think I think it's important to keep in mind that in healthcare, it's all about serving others. So, uh, so you know, when when students might be thinking about clinical or leadership roles, you I think you got to make sure it's patient centric in its focus. And that means you need to put the needs of the patient first and foremost, and make sure that everything you do, whether in business or in life, is aimed at serving them in the best possible way. You know, whether that's at the individual level or at the population level. And I think that, you know, if that focus is the forefront of both your work and career trajectory, you'll make a big impact on the health system and the lives of the patient that you serve. You know, as as we discussed before uh, with that anecdote in the pants, you know, don't let fear hold you back, nor the lack of, you know, any pants, to be honest. (laughs) When an opportunity comes your way, embrace them, take a chance, step out of the comfort zone, face your fears head on. And I think that's where you'll find growth and that's where you'll find fulfillment because, you know, take a deep breath, trust in your own skills, trust in your own abilities and just go for it. If you chase an opportunity, even when, when they come with all of your, uh, you know, your fears, your uncertainty, your doubts, I think it will lead to new experiences, new knowledge, whether you're successful or not. So I'd say, don't be afraid, chase your own dreams, follow your passion because you you know you never know where all of that take you and as i say michael you asked me before you know you've got to stay true to yourself and and do what feels right for yourself and your own family i think that's critical well that's a wonderful wisdom drop as the kids say these days and we really appreciate you spending time with us today and sharing all that with us perfect it's been an absolute pleasure to be here michael thank you for having me on the show I'm Michael Carice. Thanks for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. 